All right. If you got a Bible, go to Daniel chapter four. Um, that's where we'll spend all of our time, well, most of our time this evening. Um, as you get there, uh, I realize that you're in high school, and so there's a range here. Like some of you may be 15-year-old freshmen, and some of you may be 19-year-old seniors. And I'm no, no shame in, in that, but I recognize some of you drive and some of you don't. And so if you drive, I just let my show of hands, just show me if you drive. And so I, I think that's good. I, I, the reason I bring that up is because as you drive, there are, there are particular things as you drive that are important. Things that you need to know about the road and things you need to know about the car. And those things, like road signs, tell you particular things. And signs in your car tell you particular things. But I think there's times, particularly in our car, like if you have a newer car that has like a check engine light or, or anything like that, most of the time that feels more like it's annoying than it is something that you need to pay attention to. Um, you know, I, I'll just admit this to you. This is a safe place. I feel like we're close enough now that I can just say these things. Like a lot of times when my check engine light comes on in my car, and you just need to know, I've got like a 2010 Toyota Camry that's like hanging on for dear life. Um, and part of the reason it's hanging on for dear life is because when my check engine light comes on, I'm like, I oh, Lord to take care of that. Let me just keep driving, right? And so it's like, this is a really clear warning that something is not right in your vehicle. But most of the time, some of us, not all of us, look at that and say, it's not that big a deal, turned on, I'll be okay. And it's okay until it's not. It's okay until they tell you, hey, you need to replace your transmission because that's what your light was trying to tell you to do. And so I think there's this reality that oftentimes before um, something like your car needing to be repaired happens, there's this warning that you get to receive. I say that because the text that we're about to jump into, it's gonna be a pretty sensational text. Um, you, you just watched the theme video, and, and so you got to see what was going on. You get to see this reality of the Nez turns his life, seems to be turning his life around, and then he falls apart. But there's a reality that when you read the text in Daniel 4, it's not just he's doing one thing and then another thing happens. There's actually a warning in there that I don't want us to miss. And so here's, um, I want to give us a real quick week recap from where we ended yesterday, and then I want to give you the main idea of where we're going today. And so Daniel 4, starting in verse 1, would say this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. So if you remember, uh, yesterday we ended where he had just thrown Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And in doing that, that he, he realized that when the Lord sent what looked like either the sons of God or an angel to protect them, that the God that they served was above any other God. And so verses one through three seem like, man, we finally made the turn. Nebuchadnezzar's getting it. And even as we jump into the verses that we'll walk through today, um, there, there feels like something's different about him. He's actually speaking in his own voice in first person. He'll be talking about what he sees, and it feels like we're headed the right direction, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we recognize that there's still some growth to be had. And so here's our main idea. Uh, it's a lengthier one, and so I'm going to go through it a couple of times. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's journey from greatness to madness is an illustration of the dangerous path of sin. Don't miss the opportunity to find mercy along this road. 
And so I, I, the, everything in that is meant to be intentional. Like, like we're going to see a journey, right? Like even what we see in his dream is going to speak to some of the greatness that he has attained in his life. And then by the time we get to the end of the chapter, it looks like he's completely lost his mind. And the reality is that this is a conversation about what sin does to us. And then in addition to that, there's also this reality that it's not just this picture of saying, man, that went really bad for Nebuchadnezzar. I hope I don't end up like him. But there's also these hints of mercy all along the way that we have to be careful not to miss. And so let me pray for us as we jump in. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are honest about the destructive nature of sin. That you don't just gloss over it or hide it or, or hope that we figure it out on our own, but you are um, clearly and boldly through your word showing us the impact of sin upon us and inviting us to turn the other direction. And so Lord, I pray over the next few moments, um, the topic of sin is not, the not usually the topic that people get excited about. People don't usually say, man, I can't wait till sin day at camp. But I pray that you would allow our hearts to be receptive wherever we are with you, whether we've known you for a long time or whether we're being introduced to you for the first time this week, that we would understand the, the danger of sin, but we'd also understand the beauty of your mercy. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 4, would say this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I had a dream, and it frightened me while in my bed. The images and visions in my mind alarmed me. So I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, uh, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. And I, I want to pause just for a second. Um, even see the progress. Last time he had a dream, he was trying to kill folks because they didn't know the dream without him telling it. It feels like he's gotten a little bit more kind, and he's like, hey, guys, here's the dream. Can you help me? Verse 8. Finally, Daniel, Daniel named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and a spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. And I told him the dream, Belshazzar, head of magicians, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods and that no mysteries puzzle you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was lying in bed, I saw this. And so here's the dream. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under, under it, and the birds of the sky lived in its branches, and every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also, also saw the visions uh, of my mind, a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches." but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and a band of iron and bronze around it and the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the, the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let him be given to the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. The word is by decree of the watchers and the decision is by command from the holy ones. 
This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because none of the wise men of my kingdom can make the interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. And so there's this mo- it's this moment where he's having this dream, uh, and I just want to slow down. And I, and I hope that uh, you had the opportunity in your sessions today to go to the session about the biblical theology of trees. I just, I, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm going to say something you're going to think I'm being funny. I don't mean to be funny, but I am kind of funny. Uh, I have a brown thumb. You're like, of course you do. Uh, but what I mean by that is that I don't have a green thumb. And so like, you can't trust me with your garden. You can't be like, hey, I'm going on vacation. Will you come by my house and make sure that my flower bed lives? Your flower bed is gone. Because I am not a gardener. But there is something about the way that the scriptures talk about this idea of trees that I think is really valuable. That there seems to always be this picture of trees being this place of flourishing, this place of God giving growth and life. And so this dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having seems to fall in line with what we see oftentimes in scripture, that this tree embodies something about a person or a people. But even oftentimes, one of the things that the prophets, these were the group of people that were often giving warnings about uh, to the people of God about the way that they were living, they would often talk about Israel, the people of God, either being like a strong, healthy vine or, or being a wild vine that's been unkempt that needs to be cut off. And so I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, if that, in that time in the world, the understanding of something like a tree meant to be at this level of prosperity or strength and health, especially after he's been beginning to get himself familiar with the God of Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael, I imagine the start of this dream feels like this thrilling proposition if I am somehow associated with this tree that is growing so high that it touches the sky and stretches to the ends of the earth, that it has fruit that is abundant, that all of these animals are coming up underneath it, that I imagine the beginning of this dream is the type of thing that you wake up in the morning and you're like, yeah, that was a good dream. And then I imagine that the second part of the dream is equally as alarming that if I'm somehow associated with this tree, and he doesn't know, but he's, he's trying to figure it out, and there's something in him that feels the weight of this and is alarmed by it enough that he's asking for help and waking up alarmed by it, then there's something going on here about the tree being cut down, that the tree no longer standing in all of its majesty and fruitfulness, but all of a sudden being laid low to a stump and not having any of the, the, the coverage or expanse that it used to have. There's something in that. And then even the language of the watcher doesn't say, let it lay on the ground and be covered with dew. It says, let him Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know, but it feels like the way he's having this conversation, he kind of knows. That it begins to have this language like, let him lose the mind of a human and begin to have the mind of an animal. Like it's talking, this tree represents somebody. And I think the thing that he's wrestling with is, is that somebody me? And if that somebody is me, what would it mean for me to be cut down, for me to act like an animal and not like a human? It feels like it's a strange conversation to enter into. He's like, Daniel, Belshazzar, I need you to help me, homie. I don't understand what's going on here. So then... 
Daniel enters in and begins to interpret the dream. And some of you guys have been asking me throughout the week, why does it sometimes call him Daniel? Why does it sometimes call him Belshazzar? Here is my best guess. That when it's speaking in the Hebrew voice, so if you actually read the book, it's actually written both in, in two languages. Uh, you don't, you're not reading in the original, original language, so you don't know that. But I think when it's the Hebrew voice, the narrating voice, it says Daniel. When it's trying to be the Babylonian voice, I think they call him Belshazzar. I think that's the answer. I don't know that. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and, it, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belshazzar. Don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you, though it alarmed him. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to the whole earth, and whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all, and under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the sky lived, that tree is you, your majesty. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reached the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground and with a band of iron and, uh, and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people to live with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them to anyone that he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, my advice, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Can you imagine sitting down with the most powerful person in the known world and saying to them, here's what God's saying to you. You're about to lose your power and lose your mind. Like, can you feel the weightiness of that moment? Like, in that moment, it feels like you, you, gotta, you gotta flip whatever the message is, you better make it as positive as you possibly can. And there's something powerful about Daniel looking at Nebuchadnezzar and saying, this is the reality of what arrogance will do to you. I use the word specifically arrogance, uh, maybe a better word because the text talks about it as greatness and strength, because I think oftentimes one of the things that gets us in the most trouble, particularly around sin, is when we think that we're strong. I don't think that's just true for Nebuchadnezzar. I think there's, it's true for people as a whole. And so there are pictures of this over and over again in the scriptures. In fact, um, I've mentioned to you that there are Bible characters that maybe even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you know of them because they're, they fit into pop culture. And so that David and Goliath conversation, David was known early on in his life for being this humble boy who trusted the Lord. But then at the end of his life, he makes this grave mistake where he decides that he wants to count how many people he has in his army to understand his own strength, and it actually ends up bringing a curse upon God's people. Oftentimes, thinking, figuring out that we're strong brings us in trouble. 
There's a king named Uzziah. He's in 2 Chronicles uh, 26. I actually love Uzziah because when they describe him, it talks about like his creativity, his ability, that he had like machines for war. And so what I read, because I'm a kid that loves Marvel, I believe that he had robots. I can't prove that from the text, but like I'm like, he's doing cool stuff. And he's, he's favorite of the Lord, and it says, and then he realized he was strong. And all of a sudden, everything falls apart for him. Because he enters into doing stuff that's not his call to do, because he thinks by his own strength, he can do what he wants. And oftentimes, our biggest trouble is that we think that we're strong. I've heard people say, well, the reason I can't buy into Christianity is Christianity is a crutch for the weak. My statement to them is, it is, and all of our legs are broke. Like, our weakness is actually the venue in which God shows his strength, and we're denying something about the kindness of God when we try to rely on our own strength. And so Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you have grown great and strong, and that's actually the greatest danger to you. And then he begins to lay out for him that this is what will happen, that this is not just metaphorical language of that you're gonna be cut down and that you're gonna be given over to being like a wild animal. Like, he's like, I'm telling you that you're gonna be cut off from your people and you're gonna act like a wild animal. Like this is not this flowery language to kind of make you feel something. I'm telling you what's coming for you if something doesn't change. And so here's my advice. Turn from your sin, stop doing injustice. So let's have a conversation about sin. What is sin? A simple definition for sin is to, means to miss the mark or the intended goal. The reality is that for every single one of us, if you, took the, if you took a film of every moment of our lives, you are going to find a moment where we miss the intended mark or the goal. So this idea of even admitting sin shouldn't be something that we're coy about. Like you and I, we battle sin. Like even this week, we battle sin. And, and like oftentimes, we think about sin in this external dynamic. Like did X happen? Like this is the beauty of when you go back to the book of Exodus and you begin to read like the things like the Ten Commandments, which are basically this kind of uh, understanding of the law overall. And then when you start reading the law itself, it's more like case studies of specific situations. And we read things like thou shalt not kill. And so like I, I hope all of us in the room can raise our hand and say, hey, I haven't missed that mark. But then when you begin to read what Jesus says about sin, he takes it a step further beyond just the external missing of the mark or intended goal and begins to ask about the intent of the heart. And so the other word that I think is important, and, and the version of the Bible we're reading is the CSB, but if you were reading the ESV, it wouldn't say turn from your injustices, it would say turn from your iniquity. And iniquity means to be twisted or distorted. And this is actually a description of the internal dynamic. And so there's the challenge of sin is that sin has a external version of it that we can see, but there's also an internal dynamic of it that we, that we live in. And Daniel's saying to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we gotta change both. Like it's not just what everyone sees, but it's also something internal on the inside, this iniquity, this distortion of your heart that needs to be dealt with. And, and if you do this, my prayer is that the Lord would extend your prosperity. And I just, I just want to talk about how deeply insidious sin is. That it's not just what we do, but it's also the nature that we fight. 
Uh, it's interesting that, um, that this starts with the picture of a tree because it feels like there are times where there's these decisions about how we're going to follow God that come up when you get near a tree. So if you were to read the early part of your Bible, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 3 starts with this moment at a tree where there is a decision to be made, but the decision is not just about the action. Now, here's what happens. Adam and Eve, the first two people created, are standing there, and the serpent comes into the garden and says, does the Lord say that you can't eat the fruit of the garden? And they're like, no, we can eat the fruit of the garden. We just can't eat the fruit of this tree. This conversation is not about fruit. And a lot of you this week, you would not have a problem with this sin because you're like, I don't want fruit, I want candy. But it's not as much about the external action, though it is, as it is about the heart of the matter because the question that's actually being asked is, can you trust God? And the serpent would go on to say, well, if you eat of this tree, you're not going to die. You're actually going to become like God, which is crazy because Adam and Eve were already created in the image of God. Like there was no becoming more like God than what they already were. And in the moment, standing in front of this tree, there is a decision that needs to be made. Am I going to hear the message that God's giving and respond to it, or am I going to trust my own understanding, my own strength, and try and make myself something more than I am? That was Adam and Eve's decision, and it seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's decision, that you have proved yourself to be great, but that greatness is actually a detriment to you. Are you going to trust what the Lord provides and turn around, or are you gonna keep leaning into it? It's not just about your actions, Nebuchadnezzar, it's also about your heart. Students, can I say to you that the battle over sin is not just about the actions that people can see. It's not just about the websites that you go to on your phone. It's not just about what you're doing with a girlfriend or a boyfriend behind a closed door, but it's also about the obedience to submit yourself to God, even if you don't think what God is asking you to do makes sense for what you want. And the danger with sin is the way that we've started to talk about it culturally is it's just a personality quirk. It's just this thing that you, that's part of who you are that you gotta deal with. Or, or even more so, it's something that's outside of you. That we live in a crazy world that if, if somebody hadn't acted the way they did, then I wouldn't have responded the way that I did. That if that person driving in front of me didn't drive like they're a 93-year-old grandma, no offense to any 93-year-old grandmas in the room, like I wouldn't have gotten all road ragey. That if my parents hadn't treated me that way, I wouldn't respond like this. If my senses weren't flooded with sexual images, I wouldn't struggle the way that I struggle. And the Bible just doesn't give us that because Jesus would say over and over again that your sin is an internal problem that plays itself out in what you do, not the other way around. And then I think the other danger is that we take sin far too lightly. In fact, if we were to uh, keep reading, we would see in just a few verses that for 12 months, nothing happened. For 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was able to manage this thing. Um, I have, I've talked a little bit about my boys. Uh, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And my five-year-old, for every birthday, we, we, take, we go down to San Diego, and we either go to the zoo or we go to SeaWorld. And at this point, I think it's more for me and my wife than it is for him. I don't even know if he likes animals that much, but we, but we go anyways. 
And so this last birthday, we went to SeaWorld, and they have, like, the, they have like the show with the orcas and with, like, the dolphins and with the belugas, and it's actually really pretty cool. And so we are, as parents, are smart enough that we don't sit in the splash zone because we don't want to sit for two hours in a car completely wet driving home. And so we're as close as we can be without getting wet, and they have this little girl come up so she could see an orca up close. Now, when you talk about an orca, um, that is the politically correct euphemism for killer whale. And if you don't know this, killer whales are actually some of the most deadly creatures in the world because they are intelligent, they work together, and they have a game plan of how they would take you out. So if you ever watch a, a documentary about how killer whales work, here's what they'll do. They'll swarm around their prey and they'll try and disorient it, and then they'll open up a path of escape. And so they're like, oh man, that's not as bad as I thought it was gonna be. And as they start to escape, another set of killer whales will swarm in and devour this animal that thought it was getting away. Like the animal lets its guard down and thinks, okay, I'm safe, I've made it through this, that was bad for a little bit, but the consequences are gone, I'm good, and then all of a sudden, they swarm in and destroy. They are apex predators to the highest degree. Like, you will never go to a restaurant and see orca on the menu. Because orcas kill everything, and I don't know that anything kills orcas. And so the reality is that they have this game plan that makes you think that, hey, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I've got it managed. I'm going to keep going. And then all of a sudden, it takes you out. And I think in the same way we play with sin. We, we, we think it's not, we could call it by another name. We can call it something other than what it is, which is a destroyer of our souls. We think that it's bad for a little bit, but the consequences have gone away. And now we're walking into our own freedom and then it swoops in and causes more destruction than what we expected. I just want to be honest with you about sin tonight. And Nebuchadnezzar had this message from the Lord that said that this is what your sin might do to you and for 12 months, he clearly didn't acknowledge that God is the God of all kingdoms and can give them to whoever he wants and that heavens ultimately rule. And so it felt like for 12 months, the pressure relieved itself and then the consequences came. That's so why I, I wrote it this way. Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a clear warning of the danger that lies ahead if sin is not dealt with. And I just want to be clear about the danger that lies ahead if sin is not dealt with. Now, sin may not make you lose your kingdom because you don't have one. And you may not be out in the field covered in dew eating next to animals. But sin has a destructive nature to it. And so let's just read the reality of how it becomes destructive in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Verse 28 says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from came from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from the people to live with wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and he gives them to anyone that he wants. 
At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Now, I don't want something to be lost in translation with culture. What's happening to Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar is acting like a beast. Now, here's the danger, because in our current vernacular, if you and your buddies go to the gym, work out, and you set a record on bench press, you'd be like, you're a beast, bro! That's not what this is talking about. This is not this, this affirmation of how strong, great, powerful, and visceral he is. It's actually this statement to say that you're acting less than human. Uh, if we had time this week, I wish I could walk you through Daniel chapter 7 because there's this picture of all of these beasts that are looking like they're powerful and they can rule and reign. And then you see Jesus as the Son of Man enter in and then very quickly you see that the one that looks like a human is much stronger than all of the beasts because he reflects the image of God. So the problem what's happening with, happening with Nebuchadnezzar is as strong as he thought he was, he was turned over to being less than human. Here's some things that we know about animals. Animals are immensely powerful. Animals um, can be immensely destructive. But as strong as any animal might be, um, none of us are like, you know what? 2024 is coming up. I'll be able, able to vote by then. I'm voting for a bear. <laughs> and here's why. Because they don't reflect the the, the sentient intelligence that God has given to humanity. They don't reflect the ability to reason and think and structure and operate. They may have some elements of that, but not in the way that God created us to be, that they are inherently less. And don't get mad at me because I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't love your dog. I'm just saying that your dog is a beast and gives himself over to every impulse that he has where you are meant to have restraint as a human because you carry the image of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, for seven periods of time, some would interpret that to be seven years, is given over to acting like a beast with very little restraint, looking like he's outside of his mind. Acting like a beast is meant to be a vivid example of the effect of sin on us. When we continue in sin without repentance, we miss the mark of our calling to show the world what God looks like. Can you imagine what it would have looked like if Nebuchadnezzar had heard the message of Daniel and said, I am going to live in the type of way. We see elements of that in the video, but if like he had really given himself over to saying that this is ultimately God's kingdom and I'm going to honor him. Instead, he looked like this impulsive beast that could not control his urges and was walking around looking like he was outside of his mind. He certainly was not fulfilling the calling that his power would have given him. It's meant to be this vivid example of sin is destructive in that way. But as sensational as this is with vivid dreams and crazy consequences, what I don't want you to miss is how merciful God is being all along the way. I mean, how crazy is it that this king who is um, intoxicated with his own strength, that God is giving him vivid dreams that describe exactly what will happen if he doesn't turn around? 
How merciful is God that he sends someone like Daniel to say, hey man, I'm gonna explain this to you. I wish this wouldn't happen to you. In fact, I'm telling you how you could potentially avoid it. Like how merciful is God to send Daniel to interpret what he may not fully understand and say, turn around, lay down your strength, humble yourself before the Lord, quit pursuing the sin of your own pride and strength and trust what God is giving you. How merciful is God to give him 12 months to turn around and declare, like there's so much mercy in the text. And so as crazy as it is to have this vivid dream and these really, really steep circumstances and consequences, it's also even more beautiful that God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar and trying to explain to him, hey, if you continue in your own strength, it's only gonna lead to your ruin. How merciful is God that he would bring you up this mountain and put you in this setting with leaders and peers that love you and give you an opportunity to sit in a room and evaluate not just your external action, because you might be killing it this week, but also your heart, and say that this is my mercy for you, that instead of leaning on your sin and strength, would you turn your heart to me? So back to our main idea. Nebuchadnezzar's journey from greatness to madness is an illustration of the dangerous path of sin. Students, don't miss the mercy that's along this road. And I just, I just want to tell you, all week I've tried to be intentional to recognize for some of you in the room, this is the, the beginning of your even introduction to Jesus. And for others of you, you've walked with Jesus for a long time. And I just want to point the mercy of God to you that keeps being presented to you over and over again. In my darkest seasons of sin, after running after whatever it was that didn't honor the Lord, I didn't lay in bed at night and say, "Mm, my sin was awesome today. I laid in bed and felt guilt and I felt shame over it. And the danger was, as much as I knew that what I was doing didn't please the Lord, something inside of me felt like I couldn't go to him until I fixed it in my own strength. And so then I would get in this cycle of trying to prove how strong I was and proving how strong I was just got me in more trouble. And then I would I'd feel the shame and the consequence of that. And then it would release, and then it would feel like it would, the, the, the weight of that would release and I would go back onto, I'm good now. And, and I would over and over again think that I've got to get myself right before I come to the Lord. And I actually think that you sang the answer to the, to the, the dilemma earlier. Maturity in your faith is that you run to the Father, not from him. Maturity in your faith is that when God presents this opportunity for mercy, you don't turn the other way and think that I'm not worthy of that, but instead you say that this is the kindness of God for me, that he would say that I'm willing to forgive what I know that you've done. And so if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, my hope is that this week, during particularly this talk, that this doesn't make you run and hide, but it actually makes you come out of hiding and say that if God is that type of merciful God that I can lay before him my brokenness and he offers me mercy, then I want to experience and know that mercy.
And then if you're, if you're new, like you, you get to start from scratch in the sense of you don't get to have all the baggage of playing the Christian game and putting on the mask. Because I, I told you that I was a kid that sat in the back that didn't feel like I belonged, but it didn't take long for me to learn, okay, I hold my, my hands like this. Not, okay, not touchdown praise, not touchdown praise, right? Like, like I, I figured out how to play the game, and I figured out how to answer the questions in small group. How are you doing? Well, you know, like I'm struggling, but the Lord's just giving me strength. I'm blessed and highly favored. Like I learned all the catchphrases. You don't have any of that baggage. Like you have an opportunity that the Lord is exposing the danger of sin, and you can enter into the mercy that's available to you from day one. Can I say this? Like, none of us in this room can walk out on the stage, put on the face mic, and be like, let me tell you how I've overcome sin, and I've never sinned ever since I prayed a prayer. In fact, some of you struggled because um, maybe when you heard me say that there should be a distinction between your life and the life of people around you who don't follow Jesus, the distinction is not that you're more perfect than them. The distinction is that you know where to find mercy. The distinction is that you are not living in your own strength trying to prove yourself to be more than this thing, but you continually run to God over and over again and say, I still haven't beat this. I still need your mercy. I still need you to remind me that it's you who overcomes not just the kingdoms that are geopolitical, but the empires of sin and brokenness that are around me. It's you that I depend on, not on myself. That's the distinction of your life. And so I just want to, give you the opportunity that even after we walk out of here, you're gonna go directly into cabin time and you're gonna have opportunity to have conversations. And students, I just wanna invite you to come out of hiding. What better place than in, in a location that's been built on pointing people to the goodness of Jesus for you to experience that by sharing that with other people who are seeking the same thing. And then I don't want to miss that the reality is that this also speaks to our resilient faith. And all week we've been giving you keys to what resilient faith looks like. Things to make sure they're a part of your life that you can have resilient faith. But let me say this. Resilient faith can't stand against opposition when it's being sabotaged by sin. The thing that can most quickly cut the knees out from your resilient faith is sin that you don't repent of. Paul, we, we, we've looked at him a lot, um, and part of that is because he's written so much of the New Testament. Uh, he, he's just very quotable in that sense. But also there's particular ways where he seems to reflect some of the things that we're talking about this week. And so he's writing a letter to a young man named Timothy. Timothy is uh, helping to lead a church in, a, in an area called Ephesus, and um, there's lots of challenge in that. There's ways that the, the church has been um, confused by idolatry from the outside, but also just uh, immaturity on the inside. And in the second part of the letter, or in the second letter that he's writing to him, Paul's near the end of his life, and he's, he's, he's sharing some things with him about what is to come. And in chapter three, after he's written about, hey, don't get caught up in foolish quarrels and conversations, but hold tightly to the word of God, showing yourself to be approved by God. In chapter three, he makes the statement, starting in verse one. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. If I could translate that for our context, there are gonna be days that are coming that you're gonna need resilient faith. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, 
traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Maybe the way I could sum that up is people are going to act like beasts. Holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. I'm just going to tell you that those words haunt me. To know that you can look like you have the activity of following Jesus but lack the true power of knowing Jesus. That this list of sins in those last days seem to work in such a way that the power that should come from having a relationship with Jesus, the, the type of resilient faith that we should have, doesn't seem to operate in the strength that it could have because these sins seem to be cutting our knees out from under us. And here's what he says. Avoid such people. But I'll parenthetically add, don't be those people. And the way that you, that you avoid being those people is you lay down your false strength and you run to the strength and the mercy of God. Let me pray. So Jesus, I thank you. You don't ask us to prove ourselves to be strong before you come to us. You actually are running to us in mercy oftentimes before we need it, before we know we need it. But Lord, would you, would you remove the facade? We live in a culture that praises strength, that praises the ability to overcome. Um, we, we have phrases like pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps as this sign of um, strength in us to get back on our own feet. But the reality is that that false strength is more dangerous to us than being honest about where we're weak. And so in the face of sin, in the face of the reality that we miss the intended goal, in the face of the fact that we are twisted and distorted in our nature, if not for your spirit coming in and making us right, then would you help us to be honest about that and plead to you for mercy? Tonight, would we not just sing about running to the Father? Would we live it out? Would that be true for students and leaders and staff and myself included? That my life would be marked by the humility to run to you for strength instead of trying to manufacture it on my own. Would we not be caught up by the, the apex predator of sin that makes us think that we've made a way out in our own strength and then only takes us deeper into despair? But would you let us know the full deliverance that comes from trusting you? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.